Good morning. I'm Lynn, um, and it's my privilege this morning to uh, open the Word of God uh, to us, hopefully for our mutual edification and enjoyment. Did anybody not have a good idea uh, who this week's sermon is about just by reading the title of the message? A timid pastor. Pastor Dave told me, you know, kind of lead him on to guess who it's going to be about. I, don't, I think you mostly got it. Um, when I was in Sunday school as a kid, we actually called him Timid Thee. Some of you know that vocationally I teach in seminaries. Um, and for the last year about, mostly what I've been teaching, not totally, but mostly what I've been teaching is New Testament Greek. I've been um, teaching uh, students, seminary students, who want to be ordained. No one who doesn't want to be ordained ever takes Greek. Um, they take it because they have to, primarily. Um, how to read the Bible in its original language. So we are reading real. Nothing more real than learning a foreign alphabet and a 2,000-year-old language to be able to read the New Testament. We are definitely reading in community. As someone said in another context, it takes a village to be able to do this. But we are not reading big. Uh, my students are going to spend, we just started a new semester, uh, we're going to spend six weeks reading not quite two chapters of Matthew. So this experience that we have here in CBE of reading big has been wonderful. In Greek, we're busy looking at each individual leaf, at the twigs on those trees, at the patterns of the bark, trying to figure out how the tree grew the way it did and what kind of tree it is, what that tree means, so to speak. We never, or at least we don't have much opportunity to look at the forest. So reading big is wonderful. I've enjoyed this so much. And partly because one of the other things I teach is a course on biblical themes. And when you read the way we're reading in CBE, you have such a better sense of how the themes of Scripture, how the big ideas of Scripture carry from book to book and even within Paul's letters from letter to letter. I do have to admit, though, that reading Romans this way made me kind of feel like I was on a tilt-a-whirl. So if any of you are, have been a little bit blown away by reading Paul's letters quite at this speed, know that starting next week we're moving back to Matthew, we're moving to a new section, and life will be a little calmer. So, you know, keep going. The other great thing that this has been for me in terms of preparing this sermon was that it's let me kind of step back and think about Timothy, Timothy, um, from the broader picture of everything the New Testament says about him. Because what we tend to do, what I tend to do, what we're actually going to do, is take a passage and figure out from that passage what we learn about uh, what God has for us there. But we learn about Timothy in a variety of places in Scripture, and that's really helpful because we don't have anything that he ever himself actually said. Now, David started the sermon series with John the Baptist. He says wonderful, important, impressive things. Um, he went on to talk about Stephen the martyr. Several chapters of Acts are devoted to his speech before his martyrdom. 
Last week, Pastor Chris talked about Paul, and there is recorded in Acts what Paul says, and we have 13 letters from him. So we have a lot of the body of speech of what the people of the Bible said until we get to Timothy. We don't have the record of a single speech of Timothy. We don't have a single sermon. We don't know a single word he ever said. We learn about Timothy mostly by what's written about him, by Luke in Acts and in Paul's letters. So Timothy, I think we can safely say, is more of a guy, a guy like us, like Lupi said, a guy we can relate to, a guy we can see both his strengths and his weaknesses, the things that challenge him, and learn how to live out our part of God's story by looking at his story. I think if all we think of when we hear the name Timothy is Timothy, and we think of him kind of as a loser or a wimp, we miss out on how powerful his story can be for finding our place in what CBE calls this ongoing story of redemption and new creation. So here's this morning's big idea. In this life, we're not asked to be perfect, but to be persistent, knowing that we can and must rely on God to accomplish what we're called to do. So let's take a look at Timothy. And instead of focusing on the timid part, I want to look at some of his strengths. We first hear about him in Acts. Paul meets him in Lystra, actually probably pronounced Lustra, but it sounds funny, on his second missionary journey. And um, somebody said, do I need you to, should we find a stick? Because we realize that I can't reach up there. (laughs) But this is Paul's second missionary journey. It's actually kind of an orange line. It looks brown. Paul goes up the coast of the Mediterranean, the east coast yes and then he cuts into the center of asia minor when they talk about asia in the bible they're not talking about japan and china they're talking about asia minor and he goes to derby and lystra and iconium where he's been before and apparently on that first missionary journey he's had a role in converting paul uh, timothy's family his mother and his grandmother to jesus But it doesn't appear that Paul has met Timothy before. Certainly he wasn't part of his conversion, but he's impressed by him. And Timothy becomes one of Paul's ministry partners to the end of Paul's life and actually even beyond. You can follow the brown-orange line all the way to Corinth and then back to Jerusalem. That's Paul's second missionary journey. The green line is his third And then the red line kind of at the bottom, remember the story of them being in Malta and then up to Rome. And Timothy is with Paul, we think, through all of that. He's with Paul in Macedonia where the churches of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea are founded. He's with Paul in Corinth. He's with Paul in Ephesus on his third missionary journey. He's with Paul in prison in Rome during his fourth journey. Now, sometimes they're separated. Sometimes when Paul is trying to stay one step ahead of an angry mob, he leaves Timothy behind. 
Sometimes he sends Timothy ahead of him as kind of the advance party for a trip. But Timothy is also sent on some more important trips on his own or with a companion who isn't Paul. Paul sends, right after the founding of the church in Thessalonica, Paul sends Timothy back to check on those believers. He has to leave town kind of suddenly, one of those sort of angry mob things. And he writes this later about Timothy's visit. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Christ. Timothy, his brother and co-worker in this work, in other words, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. And the letter goes on to tell how Timothy did that and how pleased Paul is with what he's heard about the Thessalonians. Later, Timothy is sent to Corinth. I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. So Paul, who knows Timothy and who knows the Corinthians, they're kind of a feisty, fractious bunch, we read in those letters, Paul's a little worried about this visit. He says later in 1 Corinthians, when Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. We have no idea how the Corinthians treated Timothy, whether it was with contempt or not, but we do know from 2 Corinthians, the follow-up letter, that Timothy's visit did not heal the wounds between Paul and the Corinthian church. But Paul and the Corinthians, I think, still value Timothy. In 2 Corinthians, Paul includes Timothy in the greeting as our brother, and he includes Timothy with himself and Silas as a preacher. He says, The Son of God, Jesus Christ, was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy. Timothy figures prominently in the letter Paul sends from prison to the Philippians, and they are way at the top of the map between uh, where it says they're actually in Macedonia. In fact, in that letter, Paul gives Timothy equal billing with himself as servants, plural, of Christ. Paul tells the Philippians, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. We don't know for sure whether Timothy gets to Philippi or not, but we are pretty sure that sometime after Paul gets out of prison that he and Timothy go to Ephesus. Not a small journey, Rome, way up there in the corner, Ephesus kind of in the convergence of these green and brown lines off the coast of the Aegean Sea. 
According to the intro to 1 Timothy and CBE, the things Paul had warned the Ephesian elders about when he met with them, that savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock, and that even from your own number men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw disciples away after them, these things are happening in Ephesus. And Paul and Timothy go there to try to set things straight. But for some reason, Paul doesn't think he can stay. We know he's been in prison at least two years. Apparently, there are other fires to fight in other places. And he leaves for Macedonia, and he urges, not commands, but urges Timothy to stay in Ephesus and deal with the problems there. So the two letters he writes, or the two we have, that he writes to Timothy at Ephesus, these are among the last um, letters we have from Paul, he addresses him as Timothy, my true son in the faith, and Timothy, my dear son. In all of this, and I haven't left much out, just a few times that Paul calls Timothy either our brother or my co-worker, Paul never speaks of Timothy to anyone with anything but affection and wholehearted support of Timothy's ministry. And we can summarize some of Timothy's strengths. And there's a typo in here, but apparently it was PDF because we can't fix it. So if you read it closely enough to find the typo, you know that you've really paid attention. (laughs) Timothy is a person of great faith in Jesus. He's a dedicated servant of God and Jesus Christ. He's an experienced preacher. He's an encourager. And he's genuinely concerned for the spiritual welfare of others. He's a loyal team player. He has a lot of experience working with Paul. So with those strengths in mind, let's turn to what I think is a key passage about Timothy from 2 Timothy chapter 1. Let's read it together in case you keep us all kind of on our toes. I'm reminded of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. To a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. His grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. 
guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So here we read about Timothy's strong faith and also about his gift, which was given to him through prophecy when the body of elders, that would have included Paul, laid their hands on you. We learn that in 1 Timothy 4. And in that same passage, Paul exhorts Timothy to devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. And I suspect that that gift, preaching and teaching, is the gift Timothy has been given, or at least it's an important part of it. Because Timothy is exhorted by Paul to preach or to teach at least seven times in these two short letters. They're only one day's reading. I think they're actually part of one day's reading in CBE. A few things we can be certain of from this passage and other parts of the letters is that Timothy isn't a superhero. He's just a guy with strengths and with challenges and that he's going through a bad patch. Some of his challenges are coming to light, are kind of surfacing in the present moment. Timothy was apparently reluctant to take on this assignment to stay in Ephesus, to put an end to false teaching, and to replace the false teaching elders with right teaching elders. I'd guess that Timothy wanted to go to Macedonia with Paul. He loved being with Paul. He loved working with Paul. And he had a great relationship with the Philippians and the Thessalonians. And they were in Macedonia, which was where Paul was going. And Ephesus, I would also guess, was also a pretty tough place to do ministry, especially for somebody who was a bit shy, who wasn't known for being forceful. And plus, he's a country boy from Lystra, a small backwater town in Galatia. Ephesus, on the other hand, was a cosmopolitan city, it had maybe a quarter of a million people. That's a lot in those days. It was maybe the fifth, maybe the sixth largest city in the Roman Empire. It was a happening place. It was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. It was adjacent to both the Mediterranean and a number of harbors, and it was on a long-established big road, a major road, that led into the heart of Asia Minor and then down all the way to Syria. So it was the natural juncture for maritime, for sea trade, which is how a lot of travel and trade went on in those days, and the land trade. So it was the major commercial center as well as the capital of Asia Minor, and it was a very wealthy city. And where there's money, sometimes, there is less faith. Ephesus had a theater that held 25,000 spectators. Remember, we're talking about the first century. This was probably more than the entire population of Lystra. You probably could have put the whole town in the theater at Ephesus. Ephesus, perhaps important for us, was most famous for the great temple to Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the worship of Artemis as the eastern mother goddess 
was really close to the heart of how the city saw itself, of how it found its identity, of what it was proud of. There were also temples to a lot of other local deities, and the other really noteworthy worship activity was worship of the emperor. There was a temple to Julius Caesar. People went to church to worship Julius Caesar. There was a sanctuary and a temple to Augustus Caesar. And this worship activity of Artemis, of these other deities, and especially of the emperor, was linked to how people found their social and their economic identity in that world. And all these folks who worshipped Artemis, the emperor, ancient Phrygian gods and goddesses, all these people who found their place in the world, their place socially, culturally, and economically in worshiping another god or a combination of other gods because it was kind of the flavor of the day in god worship, these people were either actively interested in stamping out the worship of Jesus or at the minimum they found no value in associating with people who followed Jesus because Jesus wasn't a God who really counted for them. So although Timothy says he will stay in Ephesus, and he does, Paul is concerned about the pressures of this responsibility. I think he writes one Timothy to encourage and to instruct Timothy as he tries to reorganize and oversee the Ephesian church. It reads like a leadership handbook almost to guide Timothy while Paul is absent. And even more, I think, Paul expects that Timothy will share at least major parts of that letter with the Ephesians so that the Ephesians know what Timothy has been charged to do and they know that he's doing it with Paul's authority. Paul is apparently planning to come back to Ephesus fairly soon. We don't know whether he does, but while Timothy is still at Ephesus, we know that Paul is arrested and taken back to prison in Rome. And from the end of 2 Timothy, we learn that it appears Paul realizes that this time he isn't going to leave prison alive. So Paul writes to Timothy to ask him to fetch John Mark and join him, Paul, in Rome and help with this ministry at the, that he has to the people in Rome at the end of his life. And he sends Tychicus, who I, we think is a native of Ephesus, to take Paul's place in Ephesus. More than this invitation, I think this letter is a strong encouragement to Timothy to not only wrap up his ministry in Ephesus in the best way he can, but also as he ministers and shares the story of Jesus with people that he meets on his way to get John Mark, on their way to Rome, and then to have him be willing to jump in strongly when he gets to Rome and is ministering with Paul in his last days or weeks or months. It appears from what we read that Timothy needs encouragement. It sounds like he is just disheartened it's got to be hard for him to stand firm in the face of this pressure from those who are civic leaders in some way and who are stubborn 
and arrogant and who find their security in their wealth or in worshiping these false gods. And it seems from the letter that Timothy may be having a little trouble being patient with them. It sounds like there's some quarreling going on, that there's some fractiousness between Timothy and the Ephesians. And that's not what Paul calls Timothy, what God calls Timothy to do. Timothy is letting the flame of his gift from God burn very low. And Paul tells him to rekindle it, to fan it into flame. He tells Timothy not to be timid, but to proclaim Jesus' message boldly, lovingly, and accurately. Moreover, Timothy is asked to, pro- to entrust the gospel, to find some people and entrust to them the gospel, some reliable people, it says in 2 Timothy 2.2, who will also be qualified to teach others. Even Paul's imprisonment, which made especially pagans doubt the power of of Paul's God, the God Paul served. And you think about it, these are the days where they're worshiping the emperor who has all the civic power, all the social and cultural power. But Paul claims to serve a greater God, uh, the God of Israel, God who is Jesus Christ. And yet Paul is in prison. What kind of a God is that who, who, whose people end up in prison? But Paul tells Timothy that the fact he is in prison is nothing to be ashamed of. It doesn't mean that God is less powerful than the emperor. Rather, it's a way of serving Jesus by sharing in his sufferings. So Paul entreats Timothy to join him in suffering for the gospel. Paul puts this all together in his final charge to Timothy near the end of 2 Timothy. And let's see if we can read that together. So this is 2 Timothy 4. There we go. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, view this charge, preach the word, Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Paul recognizes that Timothy can't do this in his own strength. He can't just pull himself up by his sandal straps. But he has some tools, some gifts from God that make this possible for him. I think there are four. The first is Timothy's faith. Paul talks about Timothy's strong faith, which he inherited or which he's learned from his family. And that faith gives him the power of the Holy Spirit living within him and also the grace of Jesus Christ. So the gift of faith, the faith, the strong faith that Timothy has gives him the power of the Holy Spirit working within him and also the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to sustain him. 
Second, Timothy knows his calling. Paul reminds him of it several times in these letters. He has that goal to move toward, that goal to strive for. Third, he has the equipping of the gospel, the equipping of the word of God. Second Timothy 1.10 says, Christ Jesus has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And then there's this famous passage, which was part of David's devotional on these books on Friday. Let's read this together. 2 Timothy 3.14-17 But as for you, continue in what you have learned and been con- have become convinced of, sorry, because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise through faith, faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And the fourth thing, the fourth tool, is the help and encouragement of God's people. We know especially about Paul in this regard. These two letters, the only two we have, there may have been more, these two letters which were written with such love and such encouragement were part, I think, of what enables Timothy to keep going. So these four things, Timothy's faith and the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of Jesus Christ that come with being a person of faith, the goal, knowing the goal of his calling, the equipping of scripture, of the word of God, and the support of God's people. Timothy has some powerful tools indeed. How does Timothy's story help us live out our part of God's story? I think like Timothy, we have strengths, challenges, things we are called to do for God, and these tools, these same tools, from God to help us persist. I can relate this to my own life. About 15 years ago, one day, I was strongly convicted reading Luke 24:32, it's the story of the walk to Emmaus, that my calling was to help open the scriptures to others. And for me, it seemed that that was requiring, that call required me to prepare to teach in a seminary, and that meant getting a Ph.D. I don't know if you can tell, but even 15 years ago, I was kind of old for that. I was 15 years older, conservatively, than any other student in my Ph.D. group. I remember meeting with them for the first time, and one of them was lamenting that in a month or two she was going to turn 30. 30 was so far in my rearview mirror at that point, I can't even imagine. And then on top of it, it took me so long. It was actually kind of embarrassing. People would ask, so, do you have your doctorate yet? I'd be like, no. I prided myself on being a good student, on being self-motivated, and yet I couldn't seem to finish. I kind of had this perfectionist thing going. I wouldn't turn anything in until I was sure it was as good as it could be. That is a recipe for never turning anything in. 
And then I finally got really close. I thought I'd turned in my final draft, and it felt like the goalpost kept moving further away. Meredith, when Emma was six months old, had to have back surgery twice in one summer. And so we were glad to be there for Emma, but I didn't get a lot of writing done. My supervisor, a few months later, asked me to add something to my final draft. It took five months of research and writing, and then he read the draft he'd already read, not the new one, and said it was fine. (sighs) Yeah. I developed an autoimmune disease, and the treatment left me exhausted but sleepless. Emma by then was one and a half, and I was napping more than she was. Although if you knew Emma, anyone naps more than she did. Then my sister died about the time I finished treatment, and she left a mess behind her. To say nothing of the guilt and the grief, it kind of felt like it went on and on. But one thing I could continue to hang on to was the fact that I knew, I was convinced I had heard God's calling to me in those words from Luke. And Carver was supportive, and other Christian friends were encouraging. And some seminaries actually started to offer me teaching jobs, even though I wasn't quite done. I finished not quite three years ago. I'm teaching seven courses this year at four different graduate schools and seminaries, and I love what I do. Of course, we all have different calls, and your call, other calls, may involve different gifts and a wide variety of situations. But Satan will try to pull us away from making a kingdom difference. So following Jesus always requires persistence. About 20 years ago now, my Aunt Edna, my great Aunt Edna, had to go into a nursing home because her dementia had gotten to the point where Uncle Red, his name was really Everett, but at one point he'd apparently had red hair. Uncle Red couldn't care for her at home. She didn't know his name anymore. She didn't seem to recognize him. She didn't remember anything about their life together. She didn't even remember her kids. But Uncle Red visited her every day. He either came twice a day or he came at noon and stayed all day, sitting with a woman who didn't know his name. And you ask, why did he waste the last years of his life doing this? Because Aunt Edna would not eat unless he was in the room. They were friends since grade school. They were sweethearts since high school. They were married over 60 years. She didn't remember his name, but in some deep part of her, she knew he was critical to her life. And Uncle Red never went anywhere. He never went out to lunch with the guys. He never went to visit his kids. He never left town. He was faithful to those decades-long promises to her to the marriage vows he made in the sight of God, to his calling. How do you know whether you're called to persevere in a ministry or to move on? Well, when Carver and I were in seminary, we were serving a church that was part of a denomination we came to realize we disagreed with theologically. So we consulted one of our seminary professors about whether it was time to move on 
and he asked us these questions about our ministry. Are people coming to faith? Or are people growing in knowledge and love for God? Or are people being helped? Or are hurts being healed? We were doing the Alpha Course at that church, so our answer had to be yes. And so we stayed there, although it wasn't always easy, until we clearly knew that God was calling us somewhere else. So if you're wondering whether you're to persevere, I would suggest you ask yourself those same questions. Are people coming to faith through what you're doing? Are people growing in knowledge and love for God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit? Are people being helped? Are hurts being healed? Others of you may not be sure what your calling is. Look around. Where could you make a difference for the kingdom? Do you have a family member or a friend who needs help? Are you called to spend time with a lonely neighbor? Are you called to help the homeless? If so, I have an opportunity for you. See Scott in the breezeway. Are you called to help the elderly, children, the illiterate, people in or getting out of prison, the hungry? Are you called to tell the story of the good news of Jesus to your kids, your neighbors, your parents, or people you don't even know yet? If you want to explore your calling, you can put it on the next step card or come see us after the service at the connections table. And if you're new to Grace and just want to say hi, you can, we'd love to meet you over there as well. Or you can get in touch with Pastor Dave or his assistant Janet. Their email addresses are on the back of the bulletin. You can tell them Lynn sent you. They know I was going to say this. And don't forget the power of Scripture in knowing your calling, in exploring and deepening your faith, and in persisting. If you signed up for a CBE group and haven't been yet, or haven't been in a couple weeks, commit to go this week. If you haven't signed up yet, but you'd like to, see Janet. Or, if you were kind of... If you kind of feel in a letdown period, kind of in a slump, after this big reading we've done of the letters of Paul, take courage. Commit to go back. Commit to keep pushing on. We are starting a new section this coming week with the Gospel of Matthew. This is a great time to either get involved or stay involved. We don't know whether Timothy made it to Rome in time to see Paul. Church tradition tells us that very soon after Paul wrote 2 Timothy, he was beheaded. But we do know that Timothy persevered, even to the point of suffering for faith in Jesus. How, you ask, do we know that? Well, remember I said we know, most, we know almost everything we know about Timothy from Acts and from Paul's letters. But we also know this from the letter to the Hebrews, written probably within three years of Paul's death. That author says, I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. We don't know where Timothy was in prison. We don't know whether the author of Hebrews, where the author of Hebrews is located, where Timothy is apparently going. And we don't know where the recipients are, that the people that they're all going to visit. But we do know from this verse that Timothy has remained faithful to Jesus and he suffered by being imprisoned.
the tradition of the Greek Orthodox Church is that Timothy returns to Ephesus of all places after either Paul died or he gets out of prison and that he becomes the first bishop of Ephesus till the end of his life or until he can't serve any longer and that he's succeeded by Onesimus, the former slave from the letter to Philemon. There's been a Christian presence in that area of the world ever since. Timothy goes back to Ephesus. Perseverance indeed. Pray with me.